Hi, Podium fans. I'm Yochi Driesen, one of the hosts of the Worldly Podcast. If you've been enjoying hearing stories about people from all around the globe, don't quit when the Olympics end. On Worldly, we talk through some of the biggest international stories, and we do it every single week. So come check us out, subscribe, and leave a review. From NBC Sports and Vox Media, this is The Podium. So let's get into the head of Sean White. The shipment of the United States. Lindsey Vaughn, this is her chance now. And I'm your host, Lauren Shahadi. Welcome to day six of the 2018 Olympic Winter Games. Today in Pyeongchang, Michaela Schifrin won her first gold medal of this year's competition in women's giant slalom. Her first run down the mountain landed her in second place, but she made up for it in the second round. Coming down the hill, hanging on and to the line by four tenths. Because of weather delays, Schifrin's now facing back-to-back days of competition. Giant slalom today and slalom tomorrow in Pyeongchang. Meanwhile, the pair's figure skating program wrapped up today at Gangyang Ice Arena. And reporter Tim Struby was there, and he joins us in studio on the podium. Tim, you had a busy day. You had your eye on this one skater, Aliona Sevchenko from Germany, and she ended up winning gold. Tell me more about her. She is pretty amazing. She's 34 years old and was raised in Ukraine before she moved to Germany. This is her fifth Olympics, and she has two bronze medals. But going to today's competition with her partner Bruno Masso, You know, she was in fourth place, and then this morning, in front of a packed house, she did sort of the unthinkable, and together they pulled off the highest score ever in a pair's free skate, and it was stunning. Meet the moment, why don't you? That was fearless. They gave a gold medal. That sounds like so much fun, and you were in the middle of it all. I was, and it was something to behold. I mean, this was... This was the Olympics at its best. It was a packed house. I've never been to an event where I've seen more Olympic athletes there. I mean, there were dozens and dozens of them. I mean, they were they were wrapped by this. And we had the North Korean cheerleaders. We had, um, you know, countries rooting on their athletes. Uh, it was, you, the excitement was palpable. It really was. And you also had Aliana's fan club, which you got to know <laughs> very, very well here. Yes, I, well, those are my sort of people. So um, I wound up meeting Rene Mueller, the founder of the German Pairs fan club. And he's been following Aliona's career for years. The European championships, all yes. And World Championships, all yes. And the Olympic um, Vancouver 2010, Sochi. And I have this big marching band drum that they play whenever Aliona or any other German pair gets onto the ice. Unfortunately, their drumming got them in a little hot water with South Korean officials who, despite Renee's protests, shut it down. So no drum for her, but she did win her first gold medal in her fifth Olympic appearance. Awesome story, Tim. Thanks so much. I wanted to understand how the pair's relationship works. They have to be excellent as individuals, but the two athletes are also so dependent on one another. There are the lifts where they have to be perfectly lined up. 
That, of course, is Scott Hamilton, longtime figure skating analyst for NBC Sports. We caught him backstage between programs at the Gangyang Ice Arena. He won the gold medal at the 1984 Winter Games in Sarajevo, but he says pairs might be even more challenging than what he did on his own. And you've got to be good choreographically. A lot of ice dancing now is showing up in pair skating. So, Scott, how do skaters get paired up? Could you look at two skaters and say, yep, they belong together? <laughs> you know, like anything else, it's a choice. You know, some countries, um, you know, when you look back at Gordiev and Grinkoff from Russia, they were just paired. They said, you guys look good together. I think you'll, you know, complement each other. You're now a pair and you're going to grow up together and, and that's going to be that. And it's shown that it works because when you think back to the Soviet Union and Russia, they won every single Olympic gold medal in pair skating from 1964 to 2006. That's a long run. Their system seems to bear fruit. We can't really do that, you know, in the United States and many other countries just choose not to do that because, you know, we want to give skaters the opportunity to choose their own path. And, you know, it's a lot of fun to be on the ice with another skater and, and accomplishing something together. Like for me, you know, at five foot nothing, that wasn't gonna work <laughs> at all. Like I was never gonna be a pair skater. I was never gonna have like the kind of the discipline to do a, even any kind of team skating because I skewed towards the spontaneous and you can't really do that when you're an ice dancer or a pair skater. I asked how partners get paired up. Alex and Maya Shibutani have been paired up since birth. Some people say, you know, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that with my sibling for anything. Your professional life completely in their hands. How does that dynamic work for them? You know, it, it seems to work really well. You know, they're, they're completely different personalities. Maya Shibutani and Alex Shibutani. She's 23. He is 26. Obviously, they've been around each other their entire lives, but they've been on the ice together since 2004. Went to the World Championships in 2003 and just said, we got to be ice dancers. And they have only been each other's partners since, Maya and Alex. Uh, Maya is sort of, you know, the uh, kind of grounded, focused. That's her identity. And with Alex, he's very spontaneous and, and you know, kind of free to... <laughs> wander about and and you know when they're on the ice though they're completely 100% on the same page but off the ice they're they're completely different I think it's in many respects it's the same with most teams you know you have one that's this personality and the other that's that personality if you look at the pair event to Hamill and Radford you know she says it all the time we're complete opposites he's long and lean I'm short and athletic so, you know, you, you have identities and roles within the relationship that help you differentiate yourself from all the other teams. You seem to have so many big moments in your life. Perhaps one of the biggest was winning gold. Can you take me back to that moment, Scott, and describe it? Do you remember it? Yeah, I remember it vividly. It's one of the strangest, most powerful moments I've ever had. And, and you'd think it was all about, you know, the kind of that old thrill of victory thing that ABC used to say, you know, but it's, it's more than that. It was pretty much every emotion I've ever felt in my life. And I was relieved that I didn't let myself down, you know, in the competition, you know, to, not to lose the medal. And then I felt lost that, you know, everything had led up to this moment and now who am I, you know? So ultimately I knew because I'd been warned so many times that 
everything in my life was now going to be completely different than it was before. I had a really strong identity in competitive skating. And, you know, for me, I was broke. I was living in a friend's parents' basement. And um, I knew I needed to get to work. And I was just really fortunate that there was a healthy professional structure to go to, even though no one in that professional structure knew what to do with the man. They were so used to presenting and producing women that I had to kind of forge my own way. And as a skater, you know, we train in relative obscurity and isolation. And then all of a sudden, you know, now it's, it's uh, you know, on my way to Sarajevo in 84, I asked somebody in O'Hare Airport what time it was, and they wouldn't give me the time of day. And on the way back, I went through O'Hare, and I was stuck in baggage claim for about two hours signing autographs. You know, So it's a whole different world. I mean, everything in your life changes so drastically and so almost in many ways permanently that who you were isn't who you are, and I was very aware of that on the podium. You can hear Scott Hamilton throughout the 2018 games on the networks of NBC. Several Winter Olympians we've met here in Pyeongchang actually started out in summer sports. Alana Myers-Taylor played softball before switching to bobsled. Her brakeman, Lauren Gibbs, ran track. And our next guest was also a track and field athlete before making his debut in broadcasting. From there, he had to learn the ins and outs of three Olympic events, bobsled, luge, and skeleton. Lewis Johnson has covered 10 Olympic games, and he gave me a crash course in the sliding sports, starting with luge. The athletes are actually laying on their back, okay, feet first, and they've got the kufins that they actually put their feet on. They're kind of like the little curly cue uh, metal things that they put their feet on and sort of guide or drive the sled down the track. It is a lot more technical than I just explained, but it's pretty amazing to watch them go down the track, you know, 80, 90 miles an hour and negotiate the, the straighter waves, the curves with all the, they call them pressures, but it's really G-forces. It's crazy. And then skeleton, which is what we're about to transition to, um, is really nuts because they're head first. And what amazed me is, is some of the athletes telling me that they believe skeleton going head first is safer than luge. And I'm like, how is that? But um, there they're head first, and uh, the athletes are like running and then jumping on it head first, grabbing the handles, and they use their shoulders to kind of push down the front of the sled and flex the sled, if you will, to kind of guide it to where they want to go, what they call driving the lines of the track. They use their feet sometimes behind them. That's nuts. And then bobsled is just a whole nother world. You know, these massive things rumbling down the track, two-man, four-man. The incredibly difficult track the angles, the 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 uh, I mean, just the track is just it's dropping. You know, there are a couple of sections we walked the track the first day we were here, and there are a couple of sections where it is literally a wall of ice. And you look at that and you go, "How in the world does anybody come through here at 80 miles an hour with these four and five G G's? You know, pulling? How do they do that? You don't quite just get a sense of the track and how how incredibly challenging it is and and how fast they're moving." Uh, that's the one thing that's tough to translate on television, and I wish people could come here and see it for themselves. Is it common, Lewis, that athletes go from discipline to discipline? Do they switch? 
I've heard uh, a few uh, uh, stories about that, but I think most people kind of grow up. Like, losers come up early, like 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, they start losing, and they may not really get their peak until later in life. Look at Chris Master. Chris Master of the United States uh, started about 9 years old, and the uh, guy works his way through the World Cup circuit, two Olympic Games where he finishes 13th, both disappointments, and then finally here in Pyeongchang, he's able to grab the silver medal, the first ever for the United States in men's single luge. And so it took him a long time to get to that peak. Uh, skeleton, it seems like they kind of get there a little bit faster. And then, you know, bobsled is more of a team sport. So um, I think it really comes down to having the consistent drivers over a couple of games. And then you need the right push athletes behind you to help get you started. I have a four-year-old, and I just keep envisioning her asking me to try oh, to my goodness! four years. Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah, I've <laughs> got... According to Doc McStuffins. Yeah, yeah, you better let her watch. You know, I've got the boys that are 22 and 20. And I wish, as a track and field athlete, I wish I had been more aware of the winter sports early. Uh, and I tell some of the track athletes that I know from covering, I said, have you guys ever taken a look at bobsled? Seriously. I mean, it is so much fun to, to be a part of that, I think, the team aspect. But, man, it would be hard for me to see my own kids going down the track as a loser or a skeleton athlete. Give me a moment where you thought, I can't believe this is my job. Oh, my goodness. You're going to need another hour or two because I have a lot of those moments. But I'll go back to my first. Um, it's important to note that... Uh, I had two attempts to become an Olympian myself at track and field. 88, I was at the trials there when Flojo was doing her thing. I was out the first round, 800 meters. I was no way I was going to get close. But I went back in 92, and I got to the semifinals in the 800 meters, and I was crushed. I wanted so bad to be an Olympian. But the journey was more than worth it, and it led me to uh, this idea of becoming a broadcaster. And so getting to the Sydney Games as a commentator, thanks to... Uh, Sam Flood at NBC Sports who gave me my break, gave me an audition, and I got the role as an analyst. And being in stadium in the stadium there in Sydney and, and being a part of those games and the Kathy Freeman moment where she wins the 400 meters, that was just unbelievable. And that, for me, is still the signature moment of my career, although Usain Bolt has had some pretty miraculous moments there and being, you know, not far away from the finish line to watch him do his thing and have the uh, pleasure of interviewing him. Those are all great moments. There's been a treat in Pyeongchang so far. Chris Mazder, right, yeah, making yep. history with the first men's singles luge medal for Team USA. What stuck out about that run? Just that he was, you know, sometimes you can't describe it. You don't know what it is, but it's like there's something about somebody at the moment. He had this aura around him, this this relaxation. This He was okay with everything. Maybe he was sort of at peace with everything, and, and he was having fun. Mazder was just relaxed, and he came down the track at the, the on the first run, and there's a tricky section uh, coming out of curve nine, and then it's hard to see on television, but through 10 and 11, it's a chicane, so it's kind of like a twist in the, in the track. And what you don't want to do is hit the side. You want to come right down the middle of it, and he hit it perfectly in the first run, and then he hit it perfectly in the second run, so now he's in the mix. And coming into day two, you're like, okay, does he do the same thing again? And he was able to lay down the third run, and then the fourth run, and then, of course, uh, uh, the great German Locke uh, faltered in his final run, and then all of a sudden, Masters there for the silver. He just seemed to be at a place mentally that said he was going to go for it and everything was going to be fine. And it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable how relaxed he was. And then to have him back uh, uh, just last night in the mix zone there watching Aaron Hamlin with this massive <laughs> silver medal around his neck. There it is. There's the completion for this guy in his career. And I love what he said afterward. I know where I am, yeah. my place in the world right now. What yeah. did he mean by he, that? He meant that he was just at peace with it all. I mean, he. I asked him uh, about the photo that he had on his Twitter line of him as a little boy, you know, and then going coming up through the, the World Cup circuit and through the games and all the moments. He just arrived here 
ready to perform. And <clears throat> I just felt like, I don't know, sometimes it comes together for people and you can't explain it, but it just does. And that's the magic of the Olympics. You know, there's this misconception that luge, skeleton, bobsled athletes go into hibernation and then they just like pop out <laughs> yeah. every four years. Can you just lift the curtain a little bit on the work that it takes and the dedication and, and the every day? I've been up to a Lake Placid and uh, I've been up to the Olympic Training Center. Uh, and that is an amazing place where everybody is there uh, working on the dream to possibly be here. And some folks are there for several years trying to get into the rotation of making an Olympic team. So, you know, if you're a sliding athlete, then you're going to have to, you know, not only make it and be invited to stay there at the Olympic Training Center to train, then you've got to make it make the cut to go on the World Cup Tour, which is really where you're going to cut your teeth and learn how to how to compete in the sport and how to pick up all the technical nuances of, of, of being a slider, no matter what it is. And then to try and be one of those few that's selected to be an Olympian. I mean, I think it's a long, it can be a long journey for a lot of people. But I'll go back to what I said earlier about my, about my story, and I think it's hopefully the story that people can connect to no matter what they do in their lives, is that we often are so caught up in trying to figure out the end goal and what's actually going to happen. And we just don't know. We just don't know if we're truthful. So the question is, is can you be in love with the process? Can you be in love with the journey? And at this stage of the game for me at doing 10 Olympics and not everything that has happened in my career and sport has been perfect, but i have in love with the journey. And that's what I try and you know, give to my boys that are now on the early stages of their career, one in musical theater, another one as a, as a, as a young um, artist uh, who wants to be a clothing designer. And then you just try and, you know, come to the games and pick up on these stories that we feel and we share. And on my Twitter feed, I just try to give things that I see and feel that can hopefully inspire somebody back at home who, who can't be here to be in the middle of all this uh, like we are. Lewis Johnson is a reporter and analyst for NBC Sports. Tonight in primetime on NBC, Michaela Schifrin tries for her second gold medal of the Games, this time in slalom. Also, the men's Super G. Andrew Wybreck entered the previous two Olympics as a relative underdog, but walked away with a bronze medal in 2010 and a silver in 2014 in Super G. And Nathan Chen is back for the men's short program in figure skating and is a medal favorite in his first Olympics. Our show producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Our senior producer is Jillian Weinberger. Our executive producer is Nishat Kerwa. A special thanks to Brandon McFarlane, who composed our theme music. Find more episodes of The Podium on Apple Podcasts. You can watch the Winter Olympics on the networks of NBC. And you can stream every event live on NBCOlympics.com and the NBC Sports app. I'm Lauren Shahadi. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.